I loved this episode. It was so insightful and Jermaine is a gem, a pure gem. (laughs) I love that. I love that you've labeled her as a gem, but she really is because like, honestly, she just, every time I speak to her, I feel like I learn so much because she is just like a walking Wikipedia, basically a walking Google. She just has so much knowledge and Um, officially she is a health and happiness coach and empowering women to live a life that is more than just surviving and truly thriving. And honestly, she's such a testament to that. Like, as you can tell from her energy, she's just high vibe, right? And Mm -hmm. she's like that all the time. And And, uh, yeah, we didn't even really have a chance to dive into her story too deeply at all. But she has so she's a wealth of knowledge. She has so much to share. And I can from like what I do know about her, I can totally see myself in her shoes. <laughs> so I really resonated with a lot of the stuff she had to share. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I I know it's been like quite a journey for her. You know, like I know she's had she's been through a lot in her life. And so it just is so empowering to be in the space of people who have been through hardship and challenges and have been able to, you know, get to where they are now. I love it. And, you know, she's been a naturopath for years and she recently actually um, exploded into the transformation space. So I actually studied NLP with Jermaine. Um, Yeah. So she is totally across the whole like subconscious mind and mindset side of things, as well as she was a personal trainer. She um, is a heart math practitioner, which she dives into in this episode as well. It's honestly mind-blowing. So we cover all all areas to do with holistic health and also, you know, how we, we function as diabetics and how we can actually bring more self-compassion into our life to improve our blood sugars and obviously our overall HbA1c. Mm-hmm. Such a huge a huge correlation between the two that it's so easy not to really think about, especially because so often I feel like it's easy to do things for other people and put other things first. And then we kind of sweep ourselves off the rug a little bit or under the rug. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm picking up what you're putting down. It's so true. And even just being in that sort of autopilot robotic way of doing life and we're not really taking time to be present or aware of what we're thinking and feeling. We're just doing, you know, and we've just become so accustomed to that. Like how often do we actually stop and go, wow, I was actually quite anxious this morning. Why was I anxious? You know, what triggered that emotion? And is that same feeling and that same emotion and that same trigger occurring every single day? And before you know it, you're into a rhythm. So, and we know that stress and anxiety and all of those heightened emotions that put us into that sympathetic state have such an impact on our blood sugar. Mm-hmm. So this chat is juicy. You guys are going to get so much out of it. And we can't wait to dive in. Yes. And if it did inspire you in some way, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and 
leave us a five-star rating or review. Let us know what you enjoy most about this episode. It really does help this podcast out a lot and we appreciate your support. Jermaine, beautiful friend of mine. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, girls, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yes. Well, we had a chat um, a few weeks ago and it was about something completely unrelated, but you mentioned that there was a connection between self-compassion and the blood sugar levels in diabetics. And you mentioned a study and that was just music to my ears because I was like, wait, hold up. Let's just circle back. You need to tell me more about this because anything that is obviously going to improve blood sugars, diabetics are all ears for, but especially like, as you know, I'm super into holistic health and, um, you know, the emotional connection between the physical body and its symptoms. So I was just like, so, so excited to hear that somebody has actually done a study about this and you were across it and everything. And I mentioned it to Taj and she's like, yeah, we just have to get Jermaine on to talk about this. It's so, it's so incredibly powerful. And I even find in my own coaching modality, I always share an analogy of how our thoughts become an emotion that becomes a feeling in the body. And then often when we stay in that place, then that feeling starts to present dis-ease and, you know, over time left unmanaged becomes disease essentially. So I was the same when I stumbled across this study years ago and it was just in such perfect timing because I was actually with a client who was seeing me for diabetic management, but obviously as a naturopath, we take a holistic case taking and there was so much self-loathe and self-shame and depression and and so much, I guess, psychological distress around um, that was seemingly unassociated to the diabetes. So I started looking out some self-compassion and then I just found this randomized controlled trial that was for the management of HbA1c levels in diabetic patients with self-compassion therapies. And I just thought this is amazing. And so it took me down the rabbit hole and Since 2015, there's been a lot of studies that have started to really delve into the different pathways as to how this can happen, how it can change metabolic markers. And it's just incredible. And it just validates everything that I speak to. And I'm I'm always like super excited when I can just find some research papers that can make patients become excited about the, like, I guess the mind-body connection for their journey as well, where they're not just thinking I'm on medications for the rest of my life. They they can feel a bit more empowered in that sense as well. Mm. So amazing. You're and I feel like our language. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like that's the one, it's one thing that, you know, when you are diagnosed and you go to the doctor and you see the endocrinologist and it's like all this information, this is one area that's just never talked about. Like I've never had this conversation with anyone else this will be a first for me so and it's so it's so powerful like I've I've taken a couple of different snippets this morning well I've had a look at a few different papers that have kind of unfolded and come out since 
um, I first read that study and there was another one that was a 2020 study and it was published in the Journey of Mind, um, Journal of Mindfulness. Um, and I, I think they've taken a little bit of the research from the initial paper that I had seen. Um, but the title of their study is testing um, the indirect effect of type 1 diabetes of life satisfaction through self-compassion and self-coldness. Um, and it very much summarizes the same thing of that very first paper that I found back in 2015, um, which was published in Diabetes Care. Um, and the title of that one was Kindness Matters, a randomized control trial of mindful self-compassion intervention improves depression, distress and HbA1c among patients with diabetes. And that particular paper, what they both kind of summarize is that mindful self-compassion training produced statistically and clinically significant reductions in both depression and diabetes distress. Um, and the results were even main, maintained three months after the follow-up. Um, so it's great that they've also had a look at that timeline as well. Um, but they've found that the self-compassion participants also averaged um, a statistically meaningful decrease in HbA1c between their baseline and follow-up by just over um, 10 millimole. Um, and there was no overall changes in the waitlist control group who didn't practice the mindfulness compassion therapy. So it was really quite cool that, that I think that was the start of it. Um, and then from looking through the research this morning, it's just continued to unfold from there. And people have really gone into understanding the role of depression and the physiological markers um, and biological markers of that. Um, and like I mentioned, like it just speaks so much truth to the dialogue that I have in terms of explaining the stress response to a lot of my patients, diabetic or not diabetic. Um, and the way I describe that is, you know, when we have a look at our stress response, it's our survival response. And every conversation I have, I relay it back to, you know, the evolutionary purpose of humans, right? How we evolved to stay and maintain our life. And from that evolutionary perspective, when we consider when we're just living off the land, if we were in stress or survival, then we have to have the energy and the capacity to fight or flee danger, essentially. So our sympathetic nervous system, which is our fight or flight response or our stress response, the biochemical changes that are happening in result of that stress is that all of our stored glucose in our body, whether we store it as glycogen, it might be from our liver, our muscles, our fat cells, when under stress, all of that turns back into glucose and dumps back into our bloodstream because that's going to be our immediate energy source to get out of danger. And what happens is in the modern day, typically we're sitting behind a computer or we're sitting in traffic. We're not actually doing anything to utilize that glucose and put it back into the muscle or burn it for fuel. And so what happens is over time, I kind of explain it as a bit of a door knocker analogy when we're looking at insulin resistance. And insulin resistance happens, you know, 10 years before we actually get a diabetes diagnosis. So it's happening long before a GP would even consider that you would be in their diabetic kind of um, view. Um, and the way I describe it is that all of our cells have these little doors on them that are saying, you know, I'm hungry, give me some glucose, give me some energy, because all of our cells need glucose for fuel. And so they're always, whenever we receive glucose in the blood, we release insulin from the pancreas to help us manage that glucose. And then it gets the glucose and the insulin out of the blood, essentially. 
what happens over time, just like the door knocker analogy, is that, you know, imagine on a Sunday, you've got those salespeople that are walking down the street or whatever, and they're knocking on the door. And the first few Sundays, you're nice and polite, open the door, have a chat with them, and everything's fine. When it happens every single week, you start to look out the window and you scream to everyone else in the house, like, don't open the door. It's the door knockers again, like just avoid it. And that's what happens in our body. The cells start going, you know what? I've had enough. You're hustling me. I don't need any more sugar. And they just don't open their doors anymore. So we become desensitized and it's not safe to have glucose or insulin in the blood. So the next best storage site for that is around, they call it the adipose tissue that's around your body, your belly. So that's central belly fat. And so when we have that little tummy pouch, it's the first sign of insulin resistance that anyone that's got that little bulge happening there. And so the conversation that I have with people who are stressed or depressed or anxious or mums is a huge one who aren't getting sleep and are highly stressed is that you can have the perfect diet right? But if you're stressed, you're still getting that dumping of sugar in the blood. You're still becoming desensitized to insulin. And we're still kind of setting the pathway for that kind of um, pre-diabetes, essentially, when we start reviewing the blood markers of that. And so to then consider stress and depression and um, psychological distress, anxiety, self-loathe, all of this kind of stuff, it makes sense that it's going to affect our metabolic markers of diabetes. Mm, wow. 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 Mind blown. There is so much in that, but you explained it in such a beautiful digestible way. So thank you for that. Um, and like, uh, yeah, I'm getting all these little light bulbs going off because what happens like Taj, like you'll be able to vouch for this when we're stressed as diabetics, right? We're obviously living with type one diabetes. We're already here, but what happens when we're stressed? And so many other diabetics will say the same thing. Our blood sugar rises, right? That's when we start to experience that high blood sugar and feel like things are a little bit out of control. And then you're already dealing with like the symptoms of stress. So that just adds to that. And then it's like this feedback loop because you're stressed initially, blood sugar goes up, then you become stressed about your blood sugars rising because you're like, oh my God, I've got high blood sugar. That's going to mean this. And I'm probably going to lose a limb, blah. And then it creates more stress. And it's this vicious feedback loop. And as Taj said earlier on in the chat, this is never addressed by our endocrinologists, GPs, or at least not in our experience. So to hear this side of things, like, and the impact that just to have someone explain it so beautifully around like how stress and um, yet the lack of self-compassion and depression can have an impact on the body, one in leading to diabetes, but also in making living with diabetes a whole lot harder as well. Yeah, so, absolutely. And you know, when we have a look at that stressed out picture, typically anyone who's stressed, right? And I, I noticed a lot in terms of either binge eating and that kind of thing. You know, if if we have a look at what's just I've explained what's happening physiologically, physiologically in that insulin resistance response, that even though we've got a lot of sugar in the blood, it's not accessing our cells. So the brain is still going, I'm starving. I need sugar. I need energy. So then our thought patterns start to change. The brain starts to govern our mindset and we think I need immediate energy. It, evolutionarily, we've learned that sugar is the quickest source of digestible energy to get sugar into the blood nice and quick. So we start to crave things like chocolate, lollies, quick fix kind of fast digesting sugars. And then we do. And then what does that do? It drives up 
our guilt and our self-loathe and you know and it just like you said it just perpetuates that vicious cycle as it goes around and around um and you know when we start to also consider you know that um the depression side of it as well you know it i, I mentioned earlier about that whole thought emotion to feeling trajectory as well and the sad reality is when we wake up in the morning the first thing we do is look in the mirror and the only tangible proof we have of our existence is that reflection that's staring back at us even though really our identity is the soul that's inside driving that vehicle through life all we can do is have a look at what's staring back at us in the mirror and we base so much of our self-worth on that and the reality is we've had however long of a lifespan we've had to look at that daily and pick out our flaws and learn to loathe all of those you know you know imperfections that we that we see daily and when i refer back to that thought to feeling in the body creating dis-ease we've got to consider a thought might be oh my god these bingo wings these stretch marks this cellulite whatever it may be and then the thought triggers the emotion being maybe guilt it might be anxiety it might be overwhelm and then that emotion is felt in the body it might be your heart rate picks up you feel a bit sweaty and clammy you might feel a bit jittery whatever it may be and you know usually this should pass from an evolutionary perspective stress doesn't stick around and back in the day we didn't have mirrors to constantly remind ourselves of the things that you know we attach to our identity and in today's world you know we wake up and these are the immediate thoughts that are triggering our body into a, a place of stress. And then all of a sudden we might, you know, have an interaction with someone that just really pisses us off. And then we just, again, feel stressed again and it's, it's adding to the load. And quite often when we're looking at women's health as well, this stuff kind of stacks throughout life. We might have someone as a child say, oh, don't eat that, it'll make you fat. And then it gives us that thought of, oh, if I'm fat, it means I won't be loved or it means I'm unworthy. And so we create that meaning and that association. And then that stacks throughout life. We then go to school and girls bully us. And so again, reaffirms, I'm unlovable. I'm not worthy. It's because I'm fat. It's because I'm this. And then we have our first breakup. It relays it in. You know, we go through all of these stacked experiences throughout life that by the time we get to our adult years, we've got all of this meaning and interpretation in our subconscious mind that's still flaring our stress response, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. So when we're considering that self-loathe or, you know, that um, self-guilt or self-hatred or whatever it may be, when we consider this kind of timeline that's affecting our nervous system, it's it's incredibly important to have a conversation about what's happening up here in the mind when we're looking at metabolic markers and that kind of thing. That's amazing. And I think one thing you said was like, you know, sleep, how important sleep is for stress too. And I'm sure a lot of people like probably don't take those factors in when thinking about stress, right? It's more like, are you stressed? And then thinking of all the external things like what happened that day or work or, but all those little things too, that, that make such a big impact. Yeah, absolutely. And stress isn't just the emotional you know, frustrations or whatever it may be from the day to day. That's so right. Like stress can be chemical. It can be physical. It can be, you know, overtraining in the gym and creating inflammation in the lower back. Like that becomes a stress in the body. It can be, um, you know, the argument with your partner. It can be something that has happened to you as a child that is still sitting in that subconscious mind. It can be the lack of sleep. 
Um, and, you know, the lack of sleep is a huge one in the sense that we then wake up in the morning and we are craving a stimulant because we're so underslept. And when we have a look at what happens in the body when you just wake up and have coffee, right, all of that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I usually have a coffee cup here. This is fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm sipping mine. <laughs> um, and so when we have a look at, you know, we jump, we wake up, we're late for work, so we're already late, we wake up, we're chasing our tail and we're already exhausted, so we have a coffee. And then typically if you're like most women that I have a conversation with, they might not even have breakfast. Coffee is just the first thing they have in the morning. And coffee is still driving that same stress response. We're still getting the adrenaline. We're still getting the cortisol. And as you learn, we're then still also getting that sugar dumping into the blood. And then if you're not having a brekkie where you're getting some protein and some healthy fats and some fiber to actually slow down how rapidly those sugars are being utilized by the body then we're just going we're starting the roller coaster just with stress just with our morning routine before we even leave the house and then you know we've got all of that sugar in the blood insulin rushes that sugar out of the blood so we hit the peak of our roller coaster once we have the coffee and then all of a sudden it's the bloods the sugars out of the blood we go down the down end of the roller coaster and then it gets to about 10 o'clock and we're like, oh, I'm starving. And, you know, by then the brain's going, I am so hungry. You've just given me a little sugar hit and now there's nothing here. Feed me again quick. And so we lose our sense of control on the foods that we crave for the rest of the day as well. We start to lean more towards the quick fix foods. Whereas if we woke up and we had a good night's sleep and we had time in the morning to give ourselves a nourishing brekkie, we're going to be more educated and self-aware of our decisions around food for the rest of the day as well. Mm, Absolutely. And before you know it, you've got a habit, right? You're in that Mm. routine. And especially if you're going to like the same job or the same office every day, and that's how you start your morning. And after a few weeks, you are in a, a routine and creating a habit. And I, you know, obviously there's so many contributing factors and like society has such a huge role to play in just the expectations around how much we have to do, do, do and go these days so that people feel like they don't have time to, I guess, prioritize their health or to, you know, get home in time in the evening to cook a healthy meal, or they're just so exhausted from the the day that they've had that they don't prioritize it. But again, that does come down to having structure in your life and actually making your health a priority. And you probably see this so often, Jermaine, but a lot of people don't actually address the symptoms or they tend to ignore them or justify them until they receive a diagnosis. And by that stage, it's a hell of a lot harder to either reverse the process and maybe it's not even possible. So I would love to know, I guess, Um, to touch on that. And even if, you know, even explore a little bit more of your experience with diabetic clients as well, would love to know, like, are there any like commonalities that they're like coming in with, you know, whether that be routine, thoughts, feelings? um, Yeah. Are there any sort of common commonalities among those diabetic clients? Yeah, absolutely. So, Psychological distress is huge. Um, And what the research shows is that those with um, diabetes are three times more likely than the rest of the population to develop depression. Um, What I see a lot is a lot of self-loathe that comes in result of that. And I'll give you a story um, of my client that I was referring to um, at the start of our conversation. I'll tell you a little, speak a little to her story shortly. But when we're having a look at... um, you know, 
patients with diabetes and depression, it's very common that they are two comorbid comorbidities. And when we consider that, it's associated with poorer metabolic control. Um, it predicts higher hyperglycemia. Um, it in increases the risk of diabetes-related complications and mortality as well when we've got th those two conditions um, together. Now, when we're having a look at, you know, depression and diabetes, when we have these two together, um, what the research shows is it's associated with a reduced adherence to medication, um, reduced adherence to healthy lifestyle um, regimes, poor glycemic control. Um, and I saw this a lot with my patient. So her psychological distress didn't seem to her like it was related to her diabetes. When we had a chat about her mental health and I was asking what kind of things would drive the anxiety and the, the self-attack because it was quite literally the dialogue of you're so stupid, you're so dumb, you always do this and like really harsh in a dialogue. And she would say, you know, it would just be, I would be driving my daughter to school and, you know, take the wrong street or get lost. And then that would start the entire day of you're so dumb, you can't do anything, um, you know, and and just from that, you know, she'd get home and she'd be so frustrated with herself that she would just eat and she would just go home and eat and she'd just cycle through binge eating and then self-loathe for binge eating. And then she just didn't have the capacity to then, you know, she knew what she had to do. She she had the diagnosis, but she just didn't have the capacity because the self-loathe was driving her behaviours that were so contradictory to her goals for her health. Um and it's really quite sad because, you know, people have a look at, you know, people who have diabetes or, you know, particularly type 2 diabetes or people who are overweight and they just off the tongue so easily say, you know, just go lose weight or just eat better or, or whatever. And it, there is so much biochemically that makes it so much more challenging for that individual to be able to just eat better and have a better lifestyle and take care of themselves um, because, you know, all of these different behaviors and thought patterns and survival mechanisms within the body are going to trigger the brain to self-sabotage and go against our very efforts. So I see that really quite common in a lot of diabetes patients. Um, another one that I'll always, always remember, this was actually before I was a naturopath when I was just um, working as a personal trainer. Uh, I had a patient who he was 18. I think he was like 135 kilos at the time. Um, and he had been for years, he knew he had to lose weight and he was just throwing so much money at different personal trainers and packages and all of this and he would never see it out. And the reality was no one was listening to him. They'd just see this male who is overweight and give him a traditional gym program of that linear push-pull <clears throat> movement with weights. And I was the first person who said to him, you know, what did you enjoy doing when you were at a lean weight and you were moving? And he said, I loved yoga and I loved dancing. And they, people just put him in a box like you're a man and you're overweight. They wouldn't give him that option for exercise. And so I was just like, well, you know what? Like the best exercise is something that you're going to do consistently. It might not be as effective as doing weight training, but it's most definitely going to keep you exercising daily and more frequently if you enjoy it. So that kind of started our connection together. And when I left the gym, he just kind of followed me everywhere and stayed a lifelong client. And what we found most effective, I mean, you touched on earlier, do people get to a point where it's so far gone and lifestyle measures can't help it? And my answer to that is absolutely not. So he had diabetes and um, his metabolic markers and everything obviously all confirmed that. And through 
I didn't have within my scope to prescribe anything at that time. We were just working with exercise. And when we have a look at the physical body to improve insulin sensitivity, the most effective way that you can do that is by building muscle mass because muscles are the most hungriest part of our body that's going to absorb up sugar the quickest. So the more tearing we can create in the muscle, the more the body is going to become insulin sensitive to grab all that glucose for that energy and to help with the repair as well. So we just did, um, you know, some training down the park. I educated him on the importance of building that muscle mass and why we had to do that weight training as well. And then when we had a conversation about his diet, it was exactly what we just spoke to. So he would wake up at his very last alarm and quickly have a coffee and go to uni. But because there's no fridge facilities at uni, he would just take um, a banana for during the day and he'd have like maybe three coffees that day. And then when he'd get home, that's when he would eat and he would just eat a lot. And so I explained to him what's happening every time he has those coffees and goes back and sits at his desk when he's not utilizing, you know, all of that energy that is just mobilized into his bloodstream. And so I just said, you know, all I want you to focus on at the moment is just, you know, taking a bit of protein for some snacks. It might be some nuts. It might be, you know, we obviously had to work with things that didn't need to be refrigerated. Um, I was using protein shakes as a source for him at that point as well because of that reason Um, and just getting rid of the coffee. So it wasn't about restricting calories. It wasn't about controlling the binging at night. It wasn't about, you know, any of this classic recommendations of eat less and move more it was just give up the coffee and have a bit of protein throughout your day and just in that he reversed his um, metabolic markers in his bloods from like diagnostic of type 2 diabetes to pre-diabetes in a matter of two months Um, and that was just with those changes and so obviously he was still at risk but you know that was the start of his journey and he became empowered with understanding why he he couldn't control his blood sugars. I mean, in his mind, he was like, I'm not eating. I'm doing the right thing. I'm, I'm starving myself essentially. But, you know, even starvation is a stress response, right? So from that evolutionary perspective, if we're going through a period where we're not getting food, that doesn't mean, you know, you're just fasting for 24 hours. That from an evolutionary perspective signals we're about to enter winter. There is a season where there is going to be very scarce food. And so in response to that, the body is going to go through all of its, you know, adaptations to make sure that you've got enough stored energy to sustain the winter, right? Because food might not be available. And so educating people around, you know, starving yourself is not the answer for diabetes control at all. Um, So, yeah, I find those, um, like, those kind of conversations are incredibly important for diabetes management. But then when we go back and have a look at the role of depression as well, when we have a look at diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes, it is an inflammatory disease. And when we have a look at the markers of depression, we're having a look at things like increased heart rate variability. Um, We're looking at, so we know that people that have depression, they have um, higher concentrations of particular immune chemicals like interleukin-6 compared to patients who uh, don't have depression. Um, And when we have a look at the markers of inflammation of diabetes, again, it's markers of these immune chemicals like interleukin-6, which is why we've um, kind of come to the conclusion that diabetes is an inflammatory disease because we're getting all of these heightened inflammatory immune chemicals in the body as well. So the fact that we've got, you know, it's that chicken or the egg, did we start off depressed And then the inflammation that arises from that drives the, you know, metabolic damage, 
Or is it, you know, we have diabetes and then the self-loathe and the guilt that comes from that drives the depression. So I don't think you can address one without addressing the other. They both, you know, the mind and the body really need to be supported both synonymously with that. Yeah, that really lands with me. Yeah. And often like I'm always pondering like what was happening around the time of my diagnosis and definitely a conversation that Taj and I are always having as well. And it does like obviously going back, you know, it is hard to go back and really pinpoint a specific like moment or time that may have triggered. And especially when you don't have access to people who are guiding you or supporting you to, I guess, find that answer that may have caused the diagnosis. But that on that note, actually, there's so many coaches who would be able to, I guess, revert you back there. Like, for example, like um, I love hypnotherapy. And so there is a regression technique which could take you back to like a subconscious memory or event that could have triggered the start of this whole metabolic process leading to diagnosis. So that really, really resonates with me because I'm such a believer that there is a, you know, in the mind-body connection and how that stress and um, those emotions can lead to inflammation, as you mentioned, which can lead to dis-ease in the body, aka disease. So yeah, I'm I'm such a firm believer in that. And when we're looking at type one, like it's typically known as the juvenile diabetes right? So a lot of people with type one were actually diagnosed as children. And it's really hard to obviously ask a child like, oh, are you stressed? You know, or, you know, are you depressed? Because a child isn't going to be able to, like, they don't understand labels or like the full meaning of those words. So, but that's not to say that when, especially a child who is Uh, you know, has a conscious mind that is still developing and they're just taking on all the imprinting of the world into their subconscious, there is a very good chance that they have picked up some kind of a belief around, well, if I do this, I'm unlovable or, you know, and that's when the self-loathing can really start like that early. And, you know, when we have a look at the brain chemistry of children as well, and say you probably have gone into this with your own studies with hypnosis and everything, is that the the brain frequency of a child between the ages of one and seven is the same wave patterns as what an adult would be in the state of hypnosis or meditation or those couple of moments prior falling into a deep sleep and coming out of a deep sleep. So when we consider that comparison, the first seven years of our life, as you just said, we're quite literally just downloading from our environment. And because we haven't reached, you know, the brainwave changes that kind of bring us into our complete consciousness, we're kind of basically living in our ego. And this is what you see with kids, right? Like mum and dad are fighting is because they don't love me. It's because I've done something wrong. Mum and dad divorce is because I've done something wrong. I must be the bad person because we have to be self-centered in those first years of our lives because we have to figure out how we're going to survive in the environment that we've just entered into. It has to be about our survival. And so that's why we're downloading, we're receiving, and it's all about us so that we know how to, you know, when we are alone and we, you know, leave the nest, how we're going to survive. And so that is so valid in that sense. But when we're also considering where else that stress response can come for that child, um, when we're having a look at the um, ways of birth, so when a child goes through the birth canal um, through pregnancy, oh, through um, 
yeah, labor. Basically, the muscle contractions as it passes through the vaginal canal soothes and primes the nervous system. Whereas when we go through cesarean, the baby's in one environment and then all of a sudden it's in a completely different environment. And so what they've shown from these studies is that um, that in itself, children who have gone through cesarean birth have a lot lower stress tolerance and, um, you know, reduced stress management capacity in their adult years as to what a natural birth would because of that, because of that priming as it's going through the birth canal. But then also you can go deeper than that and go, you know, is this a pattern in the family and there's a lot of genetics that express here in our western world that again affect our ability to metabolize our stress hormones metabolize our neurotransmitters and they essentially leave us you know our body poorly adaptable to the impact of stress um, and anxiety and depression and all of that kind of stuff Um, so when we have a look at the Western world that we live in, the research around genetics, you know, that there's only, I think, about 5% of genetics that are um, unrelated to the environment. The other 95% of genes, this is where the research in epigenetics came out, is that the environment can turn them on or off. So we can be predisposed genetically, but it's the environment that'll say whether we express it or not. And this reflects really, really well in that There's a particular gene called the MTHFR gene, which governs our methylation pathways. And the methylation pathway is a detoxification pathway in our liver that metabolizes things like our dopamine, our adrenaline, our histamine, um, our estrogen. um, And so whenever we've got, um, when we're looking at MTHFR gene defects, there's a lot of psychological distress because it's obviously how we manage our... um, our inflammatory chemicals, how we manage our neurotransmitters. However, the Mediterranean population and the Italians have the highest prevalence of having the MTHFR gene. However, they don't express any of the morbidities that we see here in the Western world. And you look at their lifestyle, you know, they have siestas, it's a very slow-paced lifestyle, everything's seasonal produce, a lot of omega-3s, a lot of seafood, a lot of colour, a lot of variety. And it's a very, you know, low stress kind of lifestyle. Whereas you have a look at the Western world, we're eating on the go. Our food is 95% fake food that's been synthesized and manipulated. We're, you know, not sleeping. It's like a badge of honor to say, you know, I've I've survived a four hour sleep and I'm stressed out and I'm a hustler and I'm hustling around. and, And so we express so much more of these genetic presentations. So that stress response can, we can be born into the world with that predisposition. And even mum's anxiety through pregnancy and stress, all of those chemicals are affecting the fetus and utero as well. So when we come into the world, as much as we can't communicate that we're stressed or we're depressed, it's so valid that all of these different factors, when we look at the holistic model of a human being and their evolution, all of it comes into play and it all obviously a lot of this discussion has been about stress and metabolic outcomes of that. So if the baby's coming into the world stressed, of course, we're going to see this, you know, um, childhood diabetes presentation as well. Wow. Absolutely. I have been actually, it's funny you mentioned birth trauma and stuff. It's something I've been hearing about a lot lately and it makes so much sense because that is your absolute first experience of the 3D realm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And like you're taking your very first breath of air. Your lungs are like, oh my God, oxygen. Like, what is this? I've been developing in the womb for nine months, like not experiencing this thing called oxygen. And um, apparently it's like, it's almost 
painful, but also ecstasy as well. Yeah. Well, it would be like life and death in the same moment. It's like a fish that is only known to breathe underwater that's being exposed to air. And, but also it's like, you know, the, the next, the next evolution. So it is quite probably quite literally like dying and being birthed at the same time. Yeah. That is such a good analogy. That makes so much sense. And so, Gem, I would love to know if, um, let's say, like I was coming to you as a type 1 diabetic client, what would be some of the first things that you would like ask us to get like an idea of how we're living our life and what, and start to narrow down what could be having a negative impact on our blood sugar control and just our diabetes health overall? Yeah, absolutely. So prior to jumping on with my clients, I send out a really comprehensive questionnaire that asks you about... Um, you know, things that that are common in your like parents' history or your family history, your immune function, your skin function, your gut function. I go through all of it so that when we get on our call, I can have a look. I see all of these parts of the body as jigsaw puzzle pieces. And as you girls might've experienced, once you go into the conventional realm of medicine, you know, if you've got diabetes issues or hormone issues you go to an endocrinologist if you've got women's issues you go to a gynecologist if it's gut issues you go to a gastroenterologist and you go to all these different specialists and in reality the body doesn't work in isolation it all works together so when we're going to all these different specialists we miss the bigger picture and so the way I describe it to my clients is that you know all of our symptoms all of our systems all of our history are all jigsaw puzzle pieces and we can never see the full picture for that individual until we bring them together right because that's how we see what's going on and so often we get handballed to all these different specialists and you know get all these different unique diagnoses because obviously as a specialist you become so well specialized in one particular topic and it's like the biases when you're looking at the research if you seek and you shall find so if they're looking at you with the knowledge that they have of the research that they've done they're going to find all of your stuff that's relevant to their modality and then you get handed on to someone else for other symptoms so we start off there and then when we jump on the conversation, I already know the heavy hitters of where I really want to focus the conversation and delve a little deeper. And so it's never, you know, the same. This is, again, where it's so different. It's never like you've got type 1 diabetes. These are the questions that I'll ask you or these are the the measures that we'll take and this will be your treatment plan. It, it Every single client, no matter what they're coming to me for, it's the same questions and the same process. Because again, are we looking at genetics? Are we looking at your gut health? Are we looking at, you know, when we're considering gut health, there, our gut microbiomes, certain bacteria in our gut have been showed through fecal encapsulation and transplant um, transplantation that certain species actually control our metabolic weight and our BMI. So we use... Um, fecal transplants, which is basically taking the stool of someone and encapsulating it and using it as a therapy for someone else. That's been done for several years now um, in terms of like immune therapy and that kind of thing. But when they were doing the research, they have taken populations of a high BMI um, and a lot of inflammation and comorbidities associated with obesity and someone who is considered healthy and of a normal BMI. And they've done the fecal transplant. And by controlling all other measures of diet, exercise, lifestyle, they actually changed in body composition. The lean person started gaining weight. The obese person started losing weight. And what they learned is that there are specific families of bacteria. So the acomansia are associated with the leaner body composition and more improved metabolic markers. And the firmicutes are associated with inflammation and obesity. So 
things, when we start kind of delving into that realm of things, if someone was, say, for example, cesarean birth, where they're not getting inoculated with their first microbiome for the vaginal canal, then they start being predisposed to a lower immune function. They get the child with ear infections, allergies, so then they're pumped with antibiotics. And then the antibiotics from the young age and the high repetition deplete the microbiome even further. And so as the microbiome changes, so does the physical body. So does the BMI, the metabolic markers. And so they see me as an adult trying to manage their weight. And there's all this other inflammation going on. So, yeah, I can't really say that there's one particular like set of questions that I would ask someone with diabetes because for everyone it's it's literally going into every system in the body and going deep like tell me about what kind of allergies oh you've had skin problems before tell me about that too and oh you've had this and and then we go into you know um how would you describe your stress because some people have been living in a response for so long that they don't actually consider themselves to be stressed. Their body is adapted to that, right? And so it's always good to understand what their reference is of that. Or, you know, for example, anxiety, like how does anxiety feel for you? Because it feels different for every person. And all these different things that come back through these conversations are going to start to lead me into what is going to be right for that particular individual. Because Sarah, for you and Taj, for you, I mean, both two women with type 1 diabetes, probably two completely different recommendations that I would give both of you ladies. And it can even come down to what area you grew up as in it, um, as a child, you know, were you in, exposed to agricultural runoff if you're um, brought up in like a wheat farming area and that kind of thing. Um, what kind of occupation are you in? Are you um, doing shift work where you're opposing your sleep cycle? Do we have to have a look at, um, you know, what's happening with your melatonin? Because that's a hormone that um, opposes cortisol. So whenever melatonin is high, which is helping us um, head into sleep and our sleep onset in the evening, cortisol will be low. And then from 4am in the morning, as cortisol starts to slowly rise, melatonin starts to slowly decline. And so then we can also go into, you know, when we consider what influences melatonin production, what's your sleep hygiene like? What is your bedroom like? You know, is it lit or is it quite a dark space? Um, do you lay in bed and, you know, watch movies before you go to bed? Or is your bedroom only a room for sleeping? And from that, you know, what has your brain associated that room's useful? Because if we are using a bedroom where we're, um, where we haven't have it as a part office, we have it as a part lounge room, we've got the laptop in there, we've got the telly in there. Then when it comes time to go into sleep, the brain's not like, oh, this means sleep. The brain's like, oh, this could mean entertainment, it could mean anything. So yeah, the conversation and the dialogue is really so different. And to be honest, I have over time learnt that I don't actually look at the disease. The disease is really just a label of distress in the body or dis-ease in the body. So as much as it is a way, having a name or a title for something is a way to validate a client's experience, I don't necessarily believe, I feel like labeling something and naming something um, makes it stick in the tangible reality. Um, and so I'm someone who likes to talk a little bit about quantum physics and that kind of thing. And they talk about the atoms and, and, you know, it doesn't exist until you look at it, until you see it and put your attention on it. Um, and I think this is what happens when we also start labeling dis-ease of the body. Um, it really makes it manifest into a more material matter. Um, so in saying that, yeah, I think the conversation really is about the person and then, 
it starts to dissolve the diagnosis. They start to understand what's actually happening in their body and see it as a series of events that they've ignored. And then it's not like I have to reverse diabetes. It's like I just have to sleep and I just have to eat some protein and I just have to do this. And it becomes an action plan rather than this huge overwhelming diagnosis that they don't know what to do with. That's amazing. Would you say that um, for the person who, well, would you say that self-compassion and whatever, it, like managing blood sugar is the underlying factor to all of that is your stress levels and different lifestyle factors that stress creates on the body? Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm starting to believe the longer that I'm in the industry that everything is related to stress. Even if you get an infection, because as a naturopath, we're always asking, but why? But why? It's not just like you've got an infection. This is what you take. It's like, but what left your immune system at a point where it can't defend you from that infection? Because our body is geared with all of our um, ways to res- like become resilient to the environment. And so when it's not doing what it should do, we need to ask why. And so even when we see someone with an infection, the immune system, cortisol suppresses the immune system. So it leaves us susceptible to getting an infection. And so absolutely everything, if we look at cancer, there's so much research in terms of stress and shift work associated with different cancers, lack of sleep, um, autoimmune disease. Again, like our immune system regulates itself through sleep, like when we're in its sleep. So when we're working against the um, body clock, when we're working against our natural sleep and wake cycles, that in itself deranges the immune system, which can predispose cancer it can predispose autoimmune disease it can predispose you know any kind of inflammation or immune dysfunction so I I genuinely do believe that any disease and especially metabolic diseases can be you know if you manage if you look at the stress and as you mentioned Sarah having a look at hypnotherapy and addressing that subconscious stress stuff that we've collected throughout a lifespan things that are happening in our present reality the environment the foods the chemicals all of that if we address that then there's no reason for dis-ease in the body. And so the disease in itself starts to dissolve and mitigate as well. But people really underestimate the power of the free resources that we have. Like spend time in nature, get regular sleep, laugh as often as you can, spend time with friends and connect with your community. All of this stuff, like there is, if you go down the rabbit hole, there is so much research to show what this does on a biochemical level and it's all free. There's a gentleman named um, Bruce Bruce Lipton and he started his career as a cellular biologist and he has just authored so many incredible books um, which really illustrate the power of the mind in like the biology of our body. Um, And he even, I've listened to a talk of his previously where he was saying the going on a roller coaster, if someone gets on a roller coaster and they are petrified, their friends drag them along and they hate it and they are scared shitless, the immune cells that they will produce into their blood um, are, you know, the interleukin-6 and the ones that I was just talking about that are associated with disease. However, if someone sees a roller coaster and is like, oh my God, I'm pumped, this is so exciting, their immune cells that they create are the exact same immune chemicals that we pharmaceutically create for the management of cancer, that people are spending thousands upon, you know, even millions of dollars for these therapies. And our body is its own internal pharmacy. And we can produce these with our 
perceptions of reality. Whether we see something as fearful or joyful is going to change, you know, the pharmacy that we're going to start creating inside our body as well. Mm. Wow. And when it it comes to binge eating and those men, like self-loathing and um, those mental areas, what do you tell someone who is struggling with that? Like what are the first steps you would take? Um, when we're having a look at, so there's um, a couple of things here in terms of the way that we address diet and the mindset around diet. When we have a look at like what self-compassion is, um, it's been kind of conceptualized as being composed of three three components. And we want to have a look at self-kindness, which is, you know, that caring and that understanding of ourselves rather than that harsh criticism. Then we need to recognize that, you know, we're human and we are all imperfect imperfect we all fail we all make mistakes and starting to reframe the difficulties as a commonality rather than you know a personalized mess up um and then being self-aware in the present moment and I feel like self-awareness is a huge one in that we literally get by on autopilot the way our body is designed is to learn something and as soon as we understand how the behavior or the action is done put it on autopilot so that we can focus our brain's energy and attention on learning the next thing and the best analogy of this is when you learn to drive a car everything's a conscious thought you have to think to look over your shoulder adjust your seat adjust your mirror rah, rah, rah. but then you see people driving now and it's just like oh how did I end up here I just don't even remember the journey and we we'll do that with everything in life so we do this with the way that we eat if our emotional response if we if our avoidance strategies if our um, comfort strategies are associated with food and we do that as a child or we do it something triggers in our lifetime and we start to have that association it just is literally on autopilot I'm feeling sad I eat food I'm feeling um, you know for me I've gone through my own lifespan of um, binge eating and for me it was when I had to show up when I had like a lot of work to do when I had to Um, show up in my business I would procrastinate by eating and I had to learn through time that that was because of my own low self-worth it was my way of self-sabotaging of like don't show up out there because you might fail you might not know enough you might you know give the wrong information so it was just like avoiding the work so that I don't show up in that space and so when you become self-aware I generally say to everyone in that first month don't even try to you know fix yourself quote unquote like just become aware like oh he said something and that triggered me how come it triggered me and just start asking questions daily I'm eating right now is it because I'm hungry is it because something's just happened what's happened in the last couple of hours um can I go for a walk and come back and will I still be hungry and just bringing yourself back into conscious control of why we do what we do how emotions are affecting us and I think that's the first point in managing binge eating because often there's the emotion that's sitting under there and we're just ignoring it and then we're beating ourselves up for the tangible aspect of that emotion which is the food but when we can go oh okay what am I feeling and then the more we do it it's like oh wow I'm actually starting to notice whenever I have an argument with my partner I'm eating or whenever I'm and then when you can't change something if you don't know it's like when you have a roadmap it's not just you need to know the outcome you need to know not just the destination, but where you're leaving from. Otherwise, a roadmap's useless. So that self-awareness is so important to start. But then I kind of pivot the diet. We're so conditioned in 
calories in, calories out, move more, eat less. And so people have just become so conditioned for the diet culture, eat less, um, eat less carbs, eat more fat, go keto, whatever it may be. And because they're trying all this stuff that works for everyone else, they're literally shutting off their body signs that might be screaming, this isn't working for you. Like, and it really does. So the next step is really like, what do you need in this moment? What do you need from this food? And, and starting to really personalize the experience rather than what, like relying on the environment like we've been conditioned to. And then from there, removing that diet culture to teach people that it's not so much about the calorie restriction or the macro manipulation. Like if we, I teach women that we can eat food and cycle it with our menstrual cycle. We can eat food and use color therapy to feed our chakra energy systems. We can eat food and again, use color therapy to feed our microbiome. And then all of a sudden, when we shift that dialogue, food becomes about abundance. It becomes about love rather than fear. And so Often when we're binge eating, we're in a place of fear and lack, that lack mentality. I can't eat this. I'm not allowed to eat this. I've eaten too much. I'm eating because I'm, I'm starving myself because I'm fat and whatever it may be. And just that in itself is driving stress. Just those thoughts and our, mm-hmm. I guess. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. The intention behind why we're eating drives the stress response. Whereas if we're like, wow, I can eat all of this and I can eat a lot of variety and there's no limit as to how much I can eat. And you know, when people become educated about the therapeutic benefit of food and they become included in that learning process and understanding like, yeah, cool, this is a healthy food, but this also gives me this symptom. So it's not healthy for me. And that awareness allows people to go, oh my God, I actually like, when you can reduce that, like when you're making decisions based on love, when you're choosing the way you eat, that reduces the stress response. So then that helps you manage your cravings. That helps you feel those society hormones, like satiation hormones that tell you that you're full and you don't need to keep eating. And we become a lot more in tune with our, I guess, regulating mechanisms in our body. And we, we find naturally as a result of love and abundance, we don't eat as much. We don't need as much. We eat until we're satisfied and we can walk away. Um, so I think it's just those those layers really of the self-awareness um, and then, you know, what's relevant to the person and then finding love and abundance over fear and scarcity. Mm, beautiful. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, Thank get you. curious. Become an observer of, you know, what your your thoughts and, you know, what that the feeling that that is then triggering and then how you handle that feeling. And I love asking questions too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, become your own coach. Absolutely. Um, And I love, just circling back, I love that you mentioned the bigger picture as well. And, you know, particularly for diabetics, so much of what we are taught, especially when we're first diagnosed, is, well, this is now what you have to eat. Whereas that is that one-size-fits-all approach again. And like you said, that does not work for the individual. And there's so many other variables playing a role in this whole big picture Mm -hmm. of someone's diagnosis. And I'm so glad that you mentioned before as well that, you know, you'd probably give me a very different plan to what you'd give Taj Mm -hmm. because we've had different experiences, different environmental upbringings, even though we're both living with type 1 diabetes. Whereas if we were to go see a you know, an endocrinologist, the same endocrinologist, they'd probably put us on a very similar plan. So there's so many pieces of the puzzle 
missing. And it, and you know, this is where, like you, we were talking about before, specialists and the the pieces of the puzzle. Everything in your body is talking to another part of your body, right? Everything serves a purpose. And sometimes I get a little bit annoyed when, you know, doctors are so quick to take out a, an appendix or take out tonsils or take out, start removing things. It's like, oh, you don't need that. It doesn't really serve a purpose. Well. <laughs> It does. It's doing something that's talking to something else. And maybe without that piece of the puzzle, I'm not going to have a full puzzle. A hundred percent. You just said that so perfectly. It is is absolute truth. Love that. What are some key steps that you would recommend to for someone to start eliminating stress in their life or becoming more aware of like, is this stressing me out or how much stress do I have in my life? I think um, investing in personal development in terms of reading, listening to podcasts, listening to audiobooks, that is a huge thing in giving you the motivation for taking control back in your life. Um, I notice huge health differences between people who are curious and asking questions and exploring and listening to different dialogues and different opinions about things compared to people who just do the linear progression of life and they just go to work, come home, get on social media, eat, sleep, repeat. And so I think educating yourself in whatever way possible is the first key because the more you know, the more open-minded you become. Whereas, you know, before you start that journey, you're probably going to be in the mindset where you're just having a look at influencers or blogs or personal trainers and you just take everything like a grain of salt. You just, you've been told to do this, so you do this. You've been told to do this and you do this. And it's just allowing you to stay shut off. Whereas when you educate yourself, you're like, oh, wow, there's actually multiple options. Now I have the motivation to experiment and feel safe doing that because all of these options work. It's just like which option works for me. Um, so I think that's that's really, really important. Um, I think after that, um, a lot of the time, um, you know, we have this chronic inconsistency. Like we, we get hooked on a fad and we try it and then we're so anxious for the immediate result we're just in such a quick fix society that you know if in a week it hasn't worked we jump to the next thing and then we jump to the next thing and then we jump to the next thing and so if you're going to try something stick it out for at least three months because that's how long it's going to take to see any changes in the metabolic markers in your bloods um so stick it out and you know this is i say this a lot where people are like oh i've tried gluten-free and it didn't work i still get all these symptoms and it's like you did it for a week gluten still affecting your body for you know this can be months you've got to you've got to stick it out um and then if you are feeling overwhelmed and if you feel like you just don't know what is right for you invest in finding someone that is going to get to the target that's specific for you because it might seem you know like the cheaper option to see this supplement that's well marketed but spend 50 bucks there spend 50 bucks here spend 50 bucks there and at the end of the day you, there's a huge forest there and there's a bullseye somewhere in that forest. And the more you're doing, dropping like a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, you're just aimlessly shooting that arrow into the forest, hoping that you're going to hit a target. And over a long time, you know, it's cheap in the short term, but in the long term, what's that going to cost you in terms of the length of you being with your symptoms and, you know, it progressively getting worse in the sense of all of these small investments clocking up over time and you're still not actually knowing what's right for you. Whereas if you can drop a bigger investment in the short term and, you know, within one or two months, find out exactly what is going on for you and implement the exact strategy that your body needs, then, you know, you're, you're on your way to health and you're less inclined to be dependent on 
you know, anyone or anything for a long duration of time. So I think that's really important as well. Like become self-aware. Absolutely. I so advocate people, you know, being their own doctor and listening to the symptoms that their body is telling them. Um, but then, yeah, if, if it's overwhelming and you need additional support or you're not getting any luck, make the investment because, you know, a lot of the stuff that we see online, a lot of the, you know, products that you can buy online, supplements that you can buy online, a lot of the time people are buying white label products and putting their own brand on it. So it's not necessarily, um, you know, well manufactured. It's not necessarily quality manufactured. Um, it's not necessarily manufactured or sold by someone who has done studies in understanding human physiology and nutritional biochemistry um, and a lot of the time it's just food grade stuff so you know you're going to spend a lot of money on it you might buy like a well-marketed $50 supplement and it's still it it's not regulated by the therapeutic goods of Australia so it's not going to be because you can buy it over the counter and you can buy it online it's not going to be of that therapeutic standard in terms of dosing because anyone can doctor google and self-prescribe right so you're going to be spending a lot of money on a well-marketed supplement that is not going to give you the therapeutic dose that you're probably going to need to be able to heal as well. So I, I think just we are so conditioned to look outside of us for the answers. And the reality is like everything that you need, you have. So your body is always going to tell you that something's not working. And I see this a lot with um, the whole I guess like gluten in the diet thing, like people, I'll, I'll say like, what symptoms are you experiencing? And it might be like bloating, diarrhea, abdominal pain and all of this. What triggers that? Generally, if I have gluten or bread or pasta or, you know, pizza or anything, okay, tell me about your diet. Bread, cereal, sandwiches, wraps, burritos. And I'm like, you just told me that gluten gives you these symptoms and you've just now told me that your whole diet is gluten. And they go, oh yeah, like no one's said that to them and made them realize that. And it's just a huge validation of how as society we're so disconnected from our body. And so just listen, if you eat something, it doesn't matter if your girlfriend is getting incredible results on a keto diet and you're trying the keto diet and you've lost a period or you're gaining weight or you're getting headaches or anything like that, stop. <laughs> it's not working for you. Stop ignoring your body and listen to it. Um so I think that's really, really important. And, you know, what you said earlier, Sarah, about, um, you, you know, your journey where you're like, oh, you've got type 1 diabetes, you have to eat this way. When we look at how someone came to the way they are, like, yes, um, low-carb dieting and keto dieting can be great for some people. Um, and typically people with diabetes are kind of banked in that area as well. But when we have a look at the different um, ways that someone can end up with diabetes, there's that communication called, well, there's this axis called the HPA axis, the hypothalamus, pituitary and adrenal axis. And so your adrenal glands actually need certain carbohydrates, amino acids that come from certain carbohydrates to um, help with your serotonin production, to actually help you manage and tolerate stress. So depending on where you're actually sitting in your level of stress, um, some people actually need starchy carbohydrates in their diet to manage their stress response and particularly women. So there's no one diet fits all at all. So it really has to be tailored. <laughs> I'm so, so glad that you, you touched on that and you, you highlighted that because 
as diabetics, again, it's just looking at that one puzzle piece, right? It's like, okay, we just need, you've got diabetes. All we need to focus on is just lowering your blood sugars, you know, getting a a nice HbA1c. And so an easy way to manage that is by reducing the carbohydrates in the diet, right? And so that's often why we're prescribed this typical diabetes-related diet, low GI. Yet, hold on, what are we missing out on? As you just mentioned, all of those things that, you know, the amino acids that come from carbohydrates are helping our body to function. And honestly, it's, yeah, it it upsets me so often um, because like, you know, you'll go to a doctor as well and I'll often go in and present with particular symptoms and they'll like, they'll sort of start to wonder about all the possible reasons for what could be causing those symptoms. And then, which have nothing to do with diabetes, right? They're just treating me like a regular patient. As soon as you bring in the diabetes, it's like, oh, well, it's that. You know, you're automatically labeled, automatically put into that category. And so we have missed out on all of the other things. Like it goes back to those puzzle pieces. So I'm so glad that you mentioned that. And, um, you know, even with carbo- like having carbohydrates in the diet, like there are ways to like there are benefits to your blood sugars and increasing your insulin sensitivity as well um, through eating a high carbohydrate diet. Absolutely. But and I, yeah, it's just so interesting. And like, yeah, I think it's just, there's so many other things that we can miss out on by just focusing on one particular area. Like I always like to look at diabetes as like we're a human that's experiencing diabetes. Yes right? And you mentioned labels before. And like, as soon as you sort of start to identify with this label, like I'm so conscious around the language I use with diabetes. Like I never say I am a diabetic. It's like, no, I'm a human experiencing diabetes, living with diabetes. And I love the way that you talk about health as well. And the holistic approach, because it really does create space for healing, right? It really does open up this possibility that there is you know, space and a possibility to heal the body. Whereas as soon as we start identifying with that label, committing to that particular diet we've been prescribed, committing to that medication we've been prescribed, we're in that category and it's really hard for people to get themselves out of it. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And I just realised before I said amino acids when I was talking about the carbohydrates, I meant the fibres. <laughs> but, um, but and it's so important and I think... You know, if you're going to make diet recommendations like that, educate people about the food sources because when you say low carb, people think that's vegetables. People just lunch lump that in all at once. And like what I mentioned about the microbiome, the the plant foods, the fiber that comes from all these plant foods are the food source for your microbiome. So if that's the issue for you and then you're stripping all of these plant sources because you haven't been educated around carbohydrates and you know not so much getting carbohydrates out of your diet just getting the food that you're unwrapping out of the diet and start eating real food there's there's two different realities to or interpretations as to what a low-carb diet could be um so yeah and yes I, I love what you said about the labeling exactly as you worded it is exactly how I speak to it as well in the sense you know people say I'm anxious or I'm diabetic or my child's autistic and as soon as you, yeah, as soon as you put that label on, the the human body, like we as humans were always at the way 
in alignment with our identity, right? So if our identity is a diabetic, we have that, we lose that subconscious control of how we're actually showing up in our behaviours that reflect that as well. So it is about the experience. And when we see it as an experience, it's something that we can move through and move beyond rather than, you know, something that's attached to our identity. I love that, yeah. Yes. Well, I have absolutely loved this chat. Jem, you are such a wealth of knowledge. Yes, Thank you, you are so true much gem. for coming on today. <laughs> yes. Oh, girls, it has been such a chat. I'm just so like, I'm so grateful for what you girls are doing and the conversations that you're having and it's such an incredible podcast. So I'm so honoured to be here and being a guest on there. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I feel like our listeners are going to get so much out of this. Like this is definitely something like a passion that Taj and I share. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Don't mind me. Maybe we'll cut that out (laughs) or not. This is real. This is real. Um, But just, you know, that holistic approach and just looking at things as being multi-dimensioned rather than just you know what you've got this condition this is your life now and this is your fate and this is your destiny like it's just never gelled with me I've always held this belief that mm, no I, I just don't feel like I accept the fact that I'm living with diabetes right because I I know that if I try to resist it it's going to make my life a lot harder but, and finding that acceptance really helps with finding that peace. But also I do like to expand my awareness as well to all of these other possibilities because it's like, okay, well, I actually, I believe, I do hold a belief that the body can heal from anything, you know, and we see it with stage four cancers and all of these other crazy conditions. You do hear of these stories where the body has healed. Like that is what the body does right it's incredibly intelligent and you mentioned this earlier as well even with like the body fighting off infection it's like okay well if I wasn't able to fight off infection why why um so I just love having these conversations you know with people like yourself who work in this space and are so passionate about it because it really does create so much hope and expansion and empowerment. Yes, I was going to say that too. This conversation was so empowering. So as a woman's empowerment coach, it totally fits. And I feel like I could just keep talking to you. Oh, girls. If this whole mindfulness connection to dis-ease is, a, um, is something that is interesting and thought-provoking for your listeners, um, some great people to really immerse yourself in that, I guess, this new journey of self-development, like I um, promote. Um, Bruce Lipton, like I mentioned, he has two books. Biology of Belief is a great one to start with. Um, and then the wisdom of yourselves. So for me, I love the idea of all of this mystical kind of stuff and thoughts can be positive and change things, but I still need hard evidence. And to know that these books are written for the general public, but they're written by someone with a scientific foundation. Um, and he he bridges the science between, you know, mindfulness and meditation and thoughts to, you know, cellular biology and biochemistry. Um, The other one I would recommend is Joe Dispenza. And he, every event that he holds around the world, he is constant. Every event, if you're a guest, you're a part of a human study. You get hooked up to heart rate variability machines. They're measuring your brainwave patterns. And at these events, like what you touched on, Sarah, he 
is one of these people who are seeing all of these changes, people who come into an event blind and can see by the end of the event or someone who hasn't been able to walk for years can walk out of the event. And it sounds, you know, you hear all this stuff in churches and you hear all this stuff and people still have this disbelief. But there's a lot of emerging science that brings this into reality and it's absolutely possible. And so if you want to start to dabble in this and understand this, Bruce Lipton, Dr. Joe Dispenza, he has two books, um, Becoming Supernatural and Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. Um, so both of these authors, four great books, are a really good place to start in that mind-body connection. Mm, excellent recommendation. The second book was Wisdom of Yourself? Yeah, Wisdom of Yourself, okay. yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Um, and interestingly enough, this is something that happened to me a few years ago where my blood sugar went super low one day and I didn't have anything to treat it. So I put myself in this super stressful state where I thought – I like literally thought of everything that was insanely stressful to me and it kept my blood sugar stable. So I wouldn't like recommend doing that, but it just kind of resonates with everything that you're saying. <laughs> wow. Taj, it was so interesting you mentioned that. I literally had the same experience two weeks ago. Really? I was out on a hike and I could feel my blood sugar dropping and I lost range on my phone so I couldn't check my blood sugar on my Dexcom. And I was like, I know I'm low. And I was like, how can I raise my blood sugar? I don't have access to any tools. It's going to take me probably 20 minutes, 30 minutes to get back to the car. And I started thinking, I know stress raises my blood sugar. <laughs> So yeah. let's start thinking you know, stressful thoughts. One thing I do when I'm working out, like if I have the means to do so, I'll sprint in the middle of my – like weightlifting if my blood sugar is dropping and it brings me back up. To, yeah, so. Well, I love how intuitive you are. This is great. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's that self-awareness, right? And also Tasha and I are like, yeah, we like using ourselves as a bit of, you know, kind of experiments like – um, so then, then we can pass on that experience to other people as well. And in fact, I'm going to bring it up because it's such a hot topic we've been talking about off air. And I feel like, Jem, you might have some knowledge around this, but because you mentioned nature and all of the things that we have access to for free, plant medicine and blood sugar, plant medicine and dis-ease in the body. Thoughts? Um Plant medicine is amazing. And the thing is, I find it so funny that conventional wisdom says there's no evidence for plant medicine, but then as soon as there becomes enough randomized controlled clinical trials, then they'll take it from us and paint it and sell it in pharmacies. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oil. <laughs> it just it just blows my mind. And so um, but there are a lot of fantastic herbs that are used for the management of blood sugar. Um, bitter melon is one. Um the um, fennel is another one, fennel root. There's a lot of herbs that are um, used that are just fantastic. But even when we're considering, like what I mentioned, that time in nature, when we have a look at, this is actually um, something that I'm looking at investing in as a side product myself. But so all of this hype around CBD or CBD oil and the benefits of CBD oil in pain management and anxiety management and all of this kind of thing, there's certain there's another compound called terpenes and terpenes are what give certain plants their aroma or their smell and so certain terpenes i guess they're kind of like um similar to um essential oils but they're not um aromatic compounds like that but 
plant this is the reason why it's terpenes and these kind of compounds that come from plants are the reason why you drive down south or you drive through the pine forest or you're surrounded in nature going for a hike and you quite literally just feel this like like this like ease and this relay you just feel like light almost and it's because we're inhaling and breathing all of these different compounds that the plants are actually releasing from the environment and they are having an effect just for the inhalation of all these different compounds and so terpenes are you know something that you know pine and all of these other plants release and they terpenes are used if you jump online they can't has to be sold as a food grade um so they can't actually put a label on like it'll cure anxiety or be used for depression or anything like that so you've got to do a bit of background research but different things like lemonine pinene and all of these different compounds have been effectively used for things like anxiety for things like insomnia for things like pain management and that kind of thing so yes you can supplement but this is why time in nature is so powerful as well And then, you know, beyond plant medicine, again, I'll touch on that I'm a big fan of quantum physics and I believe that everything is energy and you measure energy on a Hertz vibration scale. So when we are out around anything that is living, like plants and even getting your feet on grass or being by the ocean, all of these, it's actually measurable that it vibrates at a higher frequency. So when we're immersed in that environment, it quite literally energizes ourselves. And you'll notice this, you know, if you come home from work and you've been stuck in front of a computer under artificial light around people that you don't really get along with and you come home and you're exhausted but then all of a sudden you get on the phone to your girlfriends and it like picks you up and you're in a high vibe mood and all of a sudden you forget that you were so tired or go for a walk down the beach and you just feel so much better and it's because everything is energy and so whatever environment we're in is affecting that as well so keeping plants in your environment getting outdoors in nature um you know, it sounds woo-woo, but this is all what quantum physics and metaphysics and everything brings into science. It's, it's amazing. It makes so much sense. Yeah. I resonate with that. Couldn't agree more. And you know what? Everything is energy, including your emotions, which means that you have the capacity to change them by shifting your state. You know, those perfect examples you just mentioned. So have absolutely loved this chat gem and we definitely will have to do a part two because honestly there's so much more that I feel like we could expand on but thank you so much for joining us today and of course please let us know where we can find you how we can connect with you how we can work with you yeah absolutely so I am all online based which is great because Taj I know you're over in the states and say you're up in Perth so um, I have clients all around the world which is fantastic I love my online services but um jermainefinlay.com is my website um on instagram jermaine.finlay underscore naturopath instagram is where i mostly hang out